right. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. So I'm really excited. I've got Ali McLean um, on the podcast today. So Ali is a nutritionist with a focus on menstrual cycles, fat loss and metabolism. Um, And she also has her own podcast called uh, Talking Nutritionally, which I will link below. I like the little play on words that you've done with your podcast. It's really cool. Thank you. (laughs) So welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess we'll just get Oh, my pleasure. I guess we'll just get straight into it. So, I mean, I have a lot of questions in relation to metabolism because I feel like there's so much that I really do want to debunk. I feel like in the media and a lot of the information that we read out there, there's a lot of quick articles that kind of um, make us think that we can do all these things with our metabolism, like speed it up, slow it down. And it's kind of just a bit of a, it's a big confusing thing to me so I'd love for you to break it down I guess um yeah like what is our metabolism like can we speed it up can we slow it down like what's the go yeah um our metabolism is essentially just uh, the creation of energy so um at a cellular level um how are we producing energy how are we taking the energy from the food that we consume and turning it into Uh, you know, a source of energy that supports our cells and cellular function. And, yeah, for a long time I think we've described metabolism as either being fast or slow or good or bad. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I tend to look at metabolism as either being efficient or inefficient if if we want to label our Mm. metabolisms. And that's because... A fast metabolism is not necessarily a good thing. Um, We can have Mm -hmm. a really fast metabolism, which, you know, might result in somebody having frequent uncomfortable bowel motions or anxiety. Um, Or we can have a slow metabolism, which might result in altered bowel motions, sluggish digestion. Uh, We neither want to be fast or slow, really. We want to have an efficient, good metabolism. And unfortunately, I think through certainly the 1990s, the early 2000s, when, you know, the 1990s, when I was exposed to diet culture and, you know, my mother who was doing light and easy and Weight Watchers and every single diet under the sun. And that was, you know, really my first exposure to diet and nutrition. We did Mm -hmm. talk about wanting to have a fast metabolism and the strategies and certainly maybe some of the myths that you have heard about or hear people talking about was that to speed up our metabolism, quote unquote, we should be eating every two or three hours. So never let yourself get hungry, make sure you're eating regularly to quote unquote, keep the fire stoked and burning. And that's not actually what we really want to develop an efficient metabolism. Mm -hmm. So an efficient metabolism is one that can effectively utilize Mm -hmm. one of two fuel sources efficiently, carbohydrate and fats. So we have our, we have our macronutrients, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, carbohydrates. For for anyone listening. Yep. Fat, carbohydrates and protein. Yep. Yeah. So there are three macronutrients. They're all a source of energy. But ultimately, we don't really want to use protein as an energy source. Leaning on protein as an energy source would sort of be like cutting down the scaffolding of a building to use that wood to keep a fire burning. Like we could do it, but it would not really Mm -hmm. be beneficial to keeping the house, you know, structured and up. It's sort of like protein. We don't want to touch the protein that's stored in our body because we want it there in muscle, for example. So our major sources of energy are carbohydrate and fat and an efficient metabolism is one that can effectively utilize both of these fuel sources, carbohydrates and fat, depending on the circumstances. An inefficient metabolism is one that really is stuck in this carbohydrate burning mode or this sugar burning mode and so to to know whether or not you have a good or bad mm-hmm. metabolism, if we want to use like very simple labels, if you have a sugar burning metabolism, yeah. it's not ideal. And 
it will manifest in things like cravings yep. for carbohydrate rich meals, cravings for really sweet foods, especially straight after a meal. It'll manifest in the hangries, the 3.30-itis, the ups mm. and downs in mood and blood sugar control. These are all signs of an inefficient sugar-burning metabolism. So does that help to give you, wow. you know, a little okay. bit detail on, on the metabolism side of things? Yeah, it actually demystifies a lot. And it's super interesting that you touched on that diet culture in the 90s because I actually was watching a video literally this morning. And um, I think that era, like a bit of a side note, has so much to answer to in regards to the way we view health as being so like black and white, like good, bad, like it was like, you know, carbs are bad, this is good. Or, um, you know, the way that even like you were saying, they would discuss about the metabolism. Um, it's, I think I'm grateful now that we have so many people that are actually debunking all of this stuff and getting into it because the body's complicated, right? It's not, it's not really that simple. Like even your explanation, it, um, yeah, there's a lot to it. So that makes a lot of sense. So if someone has a sluggish metabolism, they're more likely to gain weight, would you say? Or is that not always the case? Definitely more the, cl- more the case. So if we, um, if we want to class a, slug- a sluggish metabolism as being an inefficient metabolism where somebody isn't able to burn fats as effectively as they can burn carbohydrate, well, then, yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. body fat will start to accumulate because if you're not using it, if you're not burning it as a fuel source, well, then your body is really mm-hmm. just getting given the message to keep storing that fat, um, which we can almost mm-hmm. do, you know, limitlessly. <laughs> um, unfortunately, yeah, okay. we can store fat almost limitlessly. That makes sense. So what are some reasons that people – all of a sudden it almost seems like have this kind of sluggish metabolism because I feel like a lot of older people, like they'll see me eating and they go, oh, you know, you've just got such a fast metabolism. You just burn through it. I wish I could do that when I was in my 20s kind of a thing. So does age have something to do with it or can we still have a really great metabolism and be able to burn through our food efficiently at an older age? Does Or does that stop or slow down just naturally? Mm. There are many things that affect our metabolism. Um, yeah, our hormones affect our metabolism. Our muscle mass affects our metabolism. Uh, stress affects our metabolism, and that for that reason, as we age, our metabolism can certainly mm-hmm. be affected negatively. Right. So when we're young. Yep we tend to have more muscle mass because we lose muscle every year from the age of 30. We are using, losing muscle mass quite considerably. Uh, Wow. That's frightening. It is very frightening, especially because I'm 36 now. So I'm like, oof, every year I'm losing it. You're like, stay there. (laughs) Exactly. And crazy. And we're not talking about muscle for the sake of, you know, wanting to do a good bicep curl. We're talking Mm. about, muscle because it's more metabolically active so muscle that's sitting on our bones is using energy at rest fat that's sitting there is not using energy at rest so having more muscle makes us more metabolically active and therefore contributes to that more efficient metabolism right that makes sense Mm. cool okay one of the reasons why you know you know, if you have a male partner, you might be sitting next to your boyfriend thinking like, why can you eat that big bowl of pasta? And I just don't feel like I can eat that big bowl of pasta. It tends to be, we're making generalizations here, but men have more yeah. testosterone. They tend to have more muscle mass. So there's more metabolically active tissue on their body. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That's really good to know. <laughs> All right. So especially for women, um, our reproductive mm-hmm. hormones do influence our metabolism to some degree and yep. our reproductive hormones change as we get older. So, you mm-hmm. know, for women who are perimenopausal, postmenopausal, even for women who are on a hormonal contraceptive, like the oral contraceptive pill, because that oral contraceptive is essentially nulling their natural reproductive hormone production, um, mm-hmm. women in those categories won't necessarily have the metabolic benefits of the 
the natural fluctuation fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone for, over the course of a menstrual cycle. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So for women as they're getting older, let's say, again, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, because I imagine they're the sorts of women who are looking at you saying, look, Marissa, you're just so lucky you get to eat what you want and get away with it. Um, at that stage of yeah. life, so peri and postmenopause, there's a number of things working against women. So they've got that declining muscle mass. They've got that change in reproductive hormones. And often mm-hmm. there's a lot of stress by that stage of life. Like there's kids, work, partners, and everything that comes along with it. And all of those yeah. things also, all of those things affect the metabolism. So that's why there can be that real, like, you know, women who are 45 plus looking down at women who are, you know, 25 saying you're, you've mm. got age on your side, you, you have a great metabolism. It's a little more nuanced yeah. than just age. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess, is there a way that you can uh, combat that? Like as we age, is there something that we can do with the types of foods we eat, the types of exercise we do in order to kind of regulate and assist our metabolism? Or is it kind of just like, out of our hands genetics your mother gave you (laughs) Um, no there's so much within your control which is the good news right like it's not just up to genetics (laughs) yeah Um, certainly there is a genetic component to your metabolism but -hmm. there's always going to be an environmental component as well so you know one of the sayings that my mentor used to always say was our genetics load the gun the environment pulls the trigger so Love it. you choose the environment, you choose whether or not that that trigger gets pulled. So mm-hmm. when it comes to our metabolism, yeah, there's so much within our control, within the environment that we can, we, we can manage to support our metabolism. One mm-hmm. of those is making sure that we are maintaining muscle or building muscle mass, right? Yep. Um, so again, not because we we want to look big or we want to you know, be able to bicep curl a, a bigger dumbbell mainly. So we maintain that metabolically active tissue on our body. So right. having a good strength training program in place, I think is an incredible practice for anyone to be um, doing, whether you're, you know, mm-hmm. young, old, female, male, having a strength program in place, which means either lifting some weights or doing a strong Pilates class or a strong yoga class, um, doing an at-home workout using, you know, your body weight. It's going to be relative to the individual and how, you know, how how strong they are. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're starting from scratch and you've never done a, you know, a strength-based training program before, then starting with some Pilates or body resistance exercise is going to help you build some muscle mass and build that metabolically active tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, two training sessions a week is all we're talking about, not necessarily, you know, every day. In fact, I wouldn't recommend doing it every day. Um, so, yeah. You know, we're talking about strategic uh, and, you know, regular but not excessive strength exercise yep. to maintain muscle mass. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's people that are experts in the field, you know, who can talk on that area. Um, of course. One that I'd recommend people, you know, scout out if they want to learn more is a professor by the name of Andy Galpin. He's based in the US, but he Ooh. is an absolute guru i interviewed him for my podcast and um he's very liberal with you know the information that he shares but it's very kind of him because he's you know up there in one of the most up there in terms of one of the most knowledgeable um exercise physiologists but that's building muscle training yeah then there is diet so we can use what we choose to eat to affect both our muscle mass and our metabolism so we can use what we choose to eat to, to affect muscle mass, which means we want to yep. make sure we're eating plenty of protein. Okay. Yeah. I can tell and you. And that'll in- be different for everyone, obviously. Yeah. Like how much and whatever. It's a whole different spiel. You have to get it personalized. But yeah, protein. Yeah. It's definitely relative. And mm. um, I would say that a good starting point for most people is to take what you're eating in terms of protein and add more. I rarely, <laughs> I rarely have a female come into the clinic who's eating an ideal amount of protein 
for her body weight or her training schedule. Yeah. So, for example, our RDI or our recommended dietary intake for protein for women is about 0.75 to 0.8 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, if we want to do the mm-hmm. maths. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. But that's a really outdated figure. I would suggest mm. that most women need to be starting with a minimum of 1.2 grams per kilo of body weight, anywhere up to okay. 1.8, depending on how physically active she is and what goals she has. And then for men, it's a bit more than it's a bit more than that. So like the sliding scale starts yep. at 1.4 and, and goes up to two. So that's, yeah, doing, amazing. that's doing maths, but to keep it really simple mm. for people, you would ideally have a portion of protein with every single meal of the day, mm-hmm. which means you would be having, if you're a female, three eggs with a meal or a portion of yep. protein powder, and you can get really good quality protein powders these days, which turn a smoothie into a meal. It'd be yeah, a, yeah. It'd be a fist-sized amount of fish or chicken or red meat if you eat yep. meat, or it would be a fist-sized amount of tofu or tempeh if you're on a plant-based option, or mm-hmm. a half a cup of um, half to one cup of lentils and legumes. Yeah. They're all equivalent portions of protein and for most people listening, having a minimum of one serve per meal would really be the mm-hmm. starting place for protein. That's really good. That's really good information to know because I do feel like it is outdated what you, if you're, to, if you're to Google it, like I think you really have to kind of search for updated and adequate information. So yeah. Exercise, appropriate exercise, protein, and do you think eating like fats and stuff like that has anything really to do with increased metabolism or not really? Yes. So how how we build our plate beyond just the protein going on there does influence that metabolism and remembering that our goal is to create an efficient metabolism that effectively burns fat and carbohydrate. So Mm -hmm. If we build our meals around the carbohydrate element, so if we have, you know, a big bowl of pasta with a little bit of tomato sauce on there, or passata, yep. I should say, mm-hmm. or if we have our big bowl of rice with a little bit of chicken curry on top, or if we mm-hmm. have three slices of toast with a little smear of peanut butter on there, yep. or if we have something that people might consider to be really healthy, like a banana and oat smoothie with yogurt and honey, um, yep. They're all really high carbohydrate meals with mm-hmm. disproportionately low amounts of protein and good fats. And right. what that does is that really sets up the scenario whereby the body goes into a carbohydrate burning mode and the body mm-hmm. then deprioritizes fat burning. So we're back here at this inefficient metabolism that's burning carbs and storing fat. Mm. Yeah. So if we want the so opposite to happen... I know. <laughs> it is. It's so great. I love it. It's really, really interesting because, you know, you just, there's so much out there and it's great to demystify. So I know. continue. <laughs> so if we want the opposite of that, then we want to, when it, we want to sh- reshift the focus when building our meals, you know, we don't want necessarily carbohydrate to be the biggest focus of our meal. And I will say nutrition is relative. So depending on how physically active and how muscular somebody is, they might have higher carbohydrate requirements mm-hmm. than you know somebody who doesn't have as much muscle mass or someone who hasn't as, isn't as physically active. Mm-hmm. But it, we still don't want it to necessarily be the hero of our of our meal. When we're building yeah. a meal, we want lots of beautiful non-starchy vegetables or low sugar fruits, you know, things like kale, mm-hmm. spinach, tomato, um, raspberries, blueberries. We want that yeah. portion of protein that I've talked about. We do want some healthy fats because they're really important for satiety and our hormone mm-hmm. production and cognition and nutrient absorption. And mm-hmm. then we want to think about the carbohydrate element. But if we do it the other way and we're still having those big bowls of carbohydrates, what it's doing beneath the surface is triggering a cascade of hormones which will promote that fat storage rather than that fat burning. Do you want me to go into those hormones? (laughs) Mm, Hit me. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. Like what? how does it influence our hormones and like what 
hormones are of significance that we should kind of be looking at? Yeah. Well, the biggest one here is a hormone called insulin. Yes, um, get into the insulin. I'm so curious about insulin because I – sorry to interject. No, I've go for it. recently um, – you know, been working on insulin because to my knowledge, I only understood insulin in relation to, in relation to type 2 diabetes, which is super basic, but that's all you ever hear about. You mm. hear high insulin, type 2 diabetes, and the story. And, you know, I was working with a practitioner and, she, and I was like, you know, I feel really dizzy. I feel really cranky. And she's like, oh, you've got insulin, something, something. And I was like, what? I was like, no, impossible. Mm. So um, I'm hearing now more and more that insulin is such a big, like managing our insulin and keeping it at a good level is like such a big um, reason for so many like health Health issues and mitigating them. Yeah. So um, go for it. Tell me about insulin. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely is. And you're not alone there. I think a lot of people's association with insulin would be um, if it's not type two diabetes, it's type one diabetes, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, where an individual would be reliant on having insulin injections. Yep to keep their blood glucose levels or their blood sugar levels normal and and healthy. Mm -hmm. So insulin is a hormone and like all hormones in the body, they have the job of maintaining homeostasis. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we want hormones in a very specific amount because they're there to keep the body safe and healthy. And insulin's job is to keep blood sugar slash blood glucose levels safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. What influences blood glucose levels is primarily the diet. So mm-hmm. the amount of carbohydrate coming in, the type of carbohydrate coming in, and whether or not that carbohydrate is being consumed with fiber, fats, and protein will okay. influence how quickly our blood glucose levels go up after a meal. This mm-hmm. is why we want to avoid processed carbohydrates uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, certainly thing like things like sweetened beverages and confectionery, but also bread and pasta would be considered processed carbohydrates. Yeah, right. It's also why we want to avoid those really high-carb meals without enough protein and fats because Mm -hmm. they cause our blood glucose levels to go up quickly. And when our blood glucose levels go up, especially when they they go up quickly, our body has to respond with insulin, okay, because... Mm -hmm insulin's job is to keep blood glucose levels safe and healthy yeah and our body and more specifically our pancreas which is the endocrine gland that makes insulin Mm -hmm. our body will just keep producing more insulin as much as is needed to keep those blood glucose levels safe and healthy yeah when the blood glucose levels aren't safe and healthy that's when something like type 2 diabetes presents Mm-hmm. Yeah, but before that point, it's just insulin increasing to try and keep those blood glucose levels safe and healthy, and that's what we call insulin resistance. Okay. So, I think of like a mother having to wake a child up to go to school. If that mm-hmm. child's like on the ball and ready to go to school, it'll just take one little poke, and the kid will jump out of bed and you know want to get ready for school. Yeah. In the case of insulin resistance, it's like the kid needs 10 p- pokes before they get up and out of bed and ready for school. So, right. um, you know, our, our cells listen to insulin. Insulin mm-hmm. tells the cells to draw glucose up from the bloodstream. Yeah. Um, but if our cells are becoming resistant to insulin, it means there's got to be more insulin to help get that glucose into the cells. It's essentially right. what's happening. Yeah. Not ideal because all hormones are needed, but within a finite amount. So we need some insulin, but as soon as that insulin gets too high and we have this state of insulin resistance and elevated insulin levels, which we can test in the blood. So you can go and get yeah. a blood test and you can ask your doctor, or you can ask your doctor for a blood test to look at your insulin levels. As soon as it starts getting high, it has negative flow on effects. So It promotes fat storage. Insulin is a fat storage hormone. So the higher it is, the more fat storage there is being taking place and the less fat burning that's taking place. 
Right. And this is what I mean by that inefficient metabolism. We've got a metabolism where the fat's stuck in the stores. It can't Mm -hmm. be burned and that's because insulin levels are too high. Right. Okay. Mm. It it does influence female hormones as well. So if you've ever heard of a condition called PCOS Uh or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yep. Seventy yep. percent. Quite common, actually. Yeah, it's, it's very common, and about seventy mm-hmm. percent of cases of PCOS are actually because of insulin resistance. So get out. Mm, yep. Yep. Wow. Because the insulin wow. sends a message mm. to our ovaries to make more testosterone, and so that wow. testosterone is what causes the irregular menstrual cycles the acne, maybe the male pattern hair growth, like dark hair on the chin or the jaw or the nipples. Uh Uh, And that's essentially what polycystic ovarian syndrome is. It's a condition of testosterone dominance or uh, androgen excess. We also refer to it as, and in 70% of cases, it's because of this insulin resistance, these elevating insulin levels. Right. So would it be like a bit far reaching to say that if you had PCOS, obviously there's so much that goes into it, but if you were to manage your insulin levels, you could inadvertently help manage your PCOS or is it a bit more complex than that? No, it's not. (laughs) So for for those 70% of cases of PCOS that are associated or are due to insulin resistance, and this is why it's important Mm. with PCOS to understand your root cause. You don't want to just assume it's due to insulin resistance. You want to make sure you are in that 70% that is affected by insulin resistance. But, yeah, it then becomes a a process of treating the insulin resistance for that female, which in turn will start to normalise the hormone production, normalise the menstrual cycle, the acne, the male pattern hair growth, those sorts of things. So Mm. in those 70% of cases of PCOS, it's almost like treating a type 2 diabetic. We're looking at muscle mass. We're looking at meal composition. Yeah. Uh, there are some supplements that I use regularly to um, to help reverse insulin resistance in people. Mm-hmm. And then there are other strategies. We can look at meal timing, for example, and yeah. use some strategic um, intermittent fasting, which can be really helpful for re- reversing insulin resistance. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, intermittent fasting, Um, you know, in terms of do you think this helps speed up metabolism because it helps with insulin regulation or um, what like are the type of clients that you're inclined to recommend to intermittent fast? Because I think, you know, some people it's suited to, some people not, but is there a general consensus that I, that, that fasting is generally good for us or what, what's your take? Mm. I think what's really important firstly is to identify what intermittent fasting is at its its most basic level. And really it's the manipulation of our eating windows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that diet culture that says eat every two to three hours, Mm -hmm. there's no intermittent fasting being practiced, right? It's just eat regularly, never get hungry, We want to really start by being able to achieve a good four to five hours between meals. And that Mm -hmm. is what I would consider to be the starting point for, you know, intermittent fasting, being able to achieve four to five hours where we're not hangry, we're not getting irritable, we're just comfortably getting on with our day, doing our work, talking to our friends without having eaten for the last four or five hours. That is step one with intermittent fasting. And most people should be able to do that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, If they can't do that, then it it is a sign of an inefficient, you know, unhealthy metabolism. Okay. Yeah. The, next, the next step is to look at our overnight fast, which is probably the area of intermittent fasting that people are more interested in. You know, they want mm-hmm. to learn about how to do a 16-hour fast or a 20-hour fast. You know, there's lots of different types of fasts that have been researched and are being um, used in practice. Yeah. In my practice, I want to see most of my clients being able to achieve a 12-hour overnight fast. So yeah. 
that means if dinner was at seven o'clock, breakfast is no earlier than seven a.m. Yep. Okay. It, if dinner was at 8 p.m., then breakfast is no earlier than 8 a.m. So that's a 12-hour overnight fast. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be doable for most people. Again, if yep. it's not, like if you wake up in the morning and you've got a headache or you're getting signs of low blood blood sugar, like, you know, sweaty palms, sweaty forehead or irritable because you haven't eaten, then again, yep. it's a sign of an inefficient metabolism. Yeah. Okay. Do you think if um uh if you're getting like shivers, if you're like cold, if you're always cold all the time, is that a sign of low blood sugar? Yes, quite potentially. Yeah. Quite potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. beyond the twelve hour overnight fast, yeah, this is where it starts to get a bit more nuanced and dependent on the individual and you know, their health status, their stage of life, their goals around reproduction, if you know, if you're a female, mm-hmm. for example. So the 12-hour yeah. overnight fast is really safe and usually quite doable for most people. Mm-hmm. Building beyond a 12-hour fast is dependent. For most yeah. women, as long as they aren't exercising first thing in the morning, building up to a 14-hour overnight fast is quite safe. You know, if they can gradually, mm-hmm. you know, get their body used to fasting from 7 p.m. till 9 a.m., for example. Yeah, it's quite safe. Mm-hmm. However, for a female of reproductive age who wants to maintain a um, healthy, predictable menstrual cycle, maybe they're trying to try for a baby, maybe they are mm-hmm. pregnant, I would not say go beyond 14 hours, generally speaking. Yeah, so 14 okay. hours is sort of the overnight fast that we cap it at. Yeah, so does that stress then send stress signals to the body if you're fasting for a prolonged period of time and then that has obviously its own cascade of events in the body? Is that right? Absolutely. So if fasting for too long, it can promote excess cortisol production, which in turn can, you know, communicate to the ovaries to not ovulate, essentially. Okay, yeah. And... It's even like I will also caveat that by saying that exercise is important to factor in here. So if somebody Mm -hmm. is exercising, um, whether it be strength-based or, you know, Pilates or walking or jogging, Mm -hmm. you don't want to fast at the expense of a post-training meal. It's really important for females to eat in the hour after exercising and for men, but it's really important to eat in the hour after exercising and that needs to be okay. factored into your overnight fast. Right. Okay. Okay. So would that mean that, you know, that uh, that meal after your workout is going to, is that so important because we need to maintain the insulin or does it have other benefits making sure you eat that hour after working out? There's other benefits to it. Um, mm-hmm. Primarily because we want to, we want to refuel with carbohydrate so when we exercise we are using the stored carbohydrate in our muscles and in the hour Mm -hmm. after that training session we want to make sure we're getting carbohydrate in to replenish those carbohydrate stores and postpone or not say not postpone avoid the post-training sort of extra appetite or the cravings that can come about with sometimes starting to build more exercise into your routine the other thing we want to get in is protein in that hour after we train so really important that eating in that hour afterwards and we're getting adequate protein carbohydrate and ideally some antioxidants and healthy fats as well yeah okay Okay. that's good that's good to know yeah Yeah. so in terms Mm. of structuring it um let's say you wanted to achieve a 14 hour overnight fast but you Mm. were going to go and do a strength workout at 7 Mm a.m i would want you to be and you're a female I would want you to be eating within the hour of finishing that workout. So let's say your goal was to be eating by 8.45 a.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you still wanted to do a 14-hour overnight fast, then to achieve that, what you would do is try and eat dinner by 6.45 the night before. And that's mm-hmm. you know that's how you can get a 14-hour overnight fast in, but still make sure you're eating that important post-exercise recovery meal. 
Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. That's an easy thing to follow. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. And um, then if you wanted to if you mm. wanted to extend the fasting, so let's say we mm. want to go into something like a 16-8 where there's a 16-hour overnight fast and an eight-hour eating window. Yeah. First of all, do you fit the like do you fit the bill for somebody who should be doing that? Um so yeah. you know, a perimenopausal, postmenopausal female, um, a healthy, active male, they would usually be the sorts of people that I'd be recommending that 16 and 8 or that 16-hour overnight fast, 8-hour eating window. Mm-hmm. However, the post-training um, recovery requirements still apply. So you okay. want to do a 16-hour overnight fast, you have to make sure you're allowing for that post-training meal and therefore potentially mm-hmm. you're starting your fast a bit earlier the day before rather than just postponing breakfast to get that yep. fast in. That's Where you just need to be really careful is in terms of extending beyond the 14-hour fast outside of considerations mm. for training recovery is anybody who's recovering from an eating disorder. So just be really conscious, you know, is this yeah. fasting sort of um, triggering thought patterns and behaviors around disordered eating anybody who is on blood sugar controlling medication should run it past a a health professional whether it be a doctor or their nutritionist should run it past them before they start fasting women who are trying Mm -hmm. to conceive or women who are pregnant or breastfeeding um, they are all people who should be really considerate of not going beyond that 14 hour overnight fast without outside advice Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, what I'm really coming to understand is health is so, uh, it's really personal. Like it really is so personal. You've got to understand what's going on in your body and what's going to work for your mental health as well and run with that. Because I think even in my younger years, I watch like YouTubers or fitness influencers and you kind of copy and paste their 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 diet and it's just like now that I am so much more informed about my own body and nutrition you're like oh my god like what the hell like you just cannot do that so yeah um yeah definitely um it's worth seeing a nutritionist if you're like I don't know where to begin but um yeah there's just so much to it yeah so much out there and I think that's why you know whenever I go and host a seminar and often when I'm speaking with clients one-on-one people are just so confused. You know, I had a lady yesterday at a seminar say, is juicing good or is juicing bad? And I think the the reason people are confused is because we do take these messages that are spread on social media and maybe it's an influencer who said, you know, this is what's worked for me, so you should all start Mm -hmm. juicing, Um, for example. But, you know what works for one person doesn't always work for the next person. So hearing one person's experience and, you know, how that changed to their diet, you know, totally revolutionized their world or turned over their health. That's that person's experience. You, the individual who's witnessing that has to be mindful of, Oh, I've got to take a step back and figure out is their experience going to be the same as my experience? Are my health requirements different to their health requirements? Are my goals different to their goals? Oh, maybe I should go and speak to a professional and, and try and figure it out rather than taking these yeah. sort of blanket statements around, yeah, juice is good, juice yes. is not good, or yeah, low yeah, good, it's, low a, carbs it's not good. Absolutely. And it's a super kind of damaging way to look at food if you're labeling it as good or bad like I had a conversation with someone the other day and I was saying that they thought that um there's a certain type of fruit I can't remember what fruit they're like oh that makes you put on weight or something like that like you just there's just so much to health and it's just a lot more intricate than than good or bad so I think even like with potatoes people are like potatoes make you put on weight um it's like yeah. There's there's a lot to it. And I guess, you know, I'm touching on what you mentioned about um, picking your appropriate carbs. I wanted to um, ask you, so, you know, what would be ideal forms of um, carbs that we're having? Oh, so we don't want them to be too starchy, um, maybe like rice or sweet potatoes or what, mm. do you, what would you recommend? Well, the consideration with carbohydrate is that we ideally don't want them in the processed form. so 
the yeah. processed form being the sorts of examples I gave earlier, confectionery, sweetened yeah. beverages. Also in that category would be things like bread, pasta, pastries, a lot of breakfast cereals, um, mm-hmm. all processed carbohydrates. So what I always like to say is we want to eat carbs that are as close to their whole and natural state as possible, or we use this mm-hmm. acronym JERF, so just eat real food. Yes. So yeah. if we think about carbs that are in their whole and natural state, it is things like fruit as opposed to fruit mm-hmm. juice. It's things yeah. like potato, and yes, potato, sweet potato, beetroot, yeah. Quinoa, yeah. buckwheat, rice. These are all examples of whole food carbohydrates, mm-hmm. which will support training recovery, support our carbohydrate requirements, but they also come with a lot of fiber and nutrients. So it's harder to overconsume these types of carbohydrates versus when we're having like lollies or a soft drink, you know, processed carbohydrates versus the less processed carbohydrates. Yeah. You know, the more processed carbohydrates are the ones that we want to avoid. And mm-hmm. they will be things like I mentioned earlier, confectionery, sweetened beverages, pastries, even pasta, breakfast cereal, bread. They would all actually be in the category of processed carbohydrate. Yeah. Whereas we want to focus our attention on our, what I would call whole food, um, whole food carbohydrates or those that have been through you know, minimal degree of human interference. And the reason we want them over our processed carbohydrates is because these whole food carbs naturally come with a truckload of fiber as well as nutrients. And the nutrients are going to depend on, you know, whether it's fruit versus potato versus beetroot. Um, But these two factors mean that not only are they going to support our training recovery and general carbohydrate requirements, they're also going to be very hard to overconsume because fiber, yeah. for example, helps us to feel fuller for mm. longer. Yeah. You know, so having a bowl of sweet potato, you're going to yeah. feel fuller a lot more quickly than if you have a bowl of um, cereal. It's so <laughs> true. It's so true. I noticed, you know, when you're eating foods that are really um, – like say like a buttery pasta or like buttery bread or something like that. Like you can eat that for days, like literally days. 100%. But when you're having like a whole bowl of vegetables, you're just like more sati- more satiated and just like full. So that's really good to know. What would you say when you're treating your clients that complain of um, low energy and are struggling to lose weight? What would you say are the common causes of that? Or would you, or would it be pretty much everything that, we've discussed today with that insulin and the um, metabolism or is there more to it? Mm. A lot of it does come down to what we've talked about today. Mm. Um, I can tell you that for many of my clients that come in to see me, you know, for the first time and they are struggling with, you know, excess body fat or low energy levels, it's often not because they're eating too much. Okay. It's, not as simple as you just have to eat less. It's mm-hmm. it's by the time they're coming to see me, it's very rarely that simple. Mm-hmm. It's usually because they're not eating enough, or they're not eating enough of the right foods at the right times, and so they're stuck in this pattern or this position of only being able to burn carbohydrates, not being able to burn fat effectively. So they've got this really short-lived fuel source which doesn't give them nice, beautiful, stable energy over the course of the day. And of course, because they're stuck in this cycle of burning carbohydrates, they're hungry, they're craving the wrong foods and they're not burning fat. So they're like low in energy, they're craving, they're storing body fat and, you know, those sorts of things could happen even when someone's not over consuming total calories in their day. So Mm. our work together is looking at meal composition, meal timing, training timing. And yes, sometimes we need to get a little more fancy and do some blood testing and Mm. add some supplements to their protocol Mm. um, to either help give things a little wriggle on um, Mm. or just to really further support their dietary changes if 
um, if you know they've had some really bad patterns to, ingrained for you know years and years that need to be reversed. Yeah, okay, that's really good to know. You know, the more we know, the more studies that come out, the more fine-tuned the information gets, and um, uh, I think we can be in good health from. We should be ideally really in good health in our 20s as much as we are in our 50s. I mean, obviously things age and things break down. That's just the way it goes. But there's a way to be optimal depending on what what age you are. I mean, at least that's what I think. Absolutely. I think, you know, our 20s is a time in in life where we can really be starting to develop good habits around food and mindset and also Mm -hmm. exercise and sleep and stress management so mm-hmm. that as we get older, you know, beyond that age of 30 where muscle starts declining, for example, or, mm-hmm. you know, into the 40s where female reproductive hormones start changing, yeah. we can use our 20s to create really great habits so that as we're older, it's not just this process of having to just reverse all of the habits that we learned in our 20s. And Unfortunately, so because in our 20s we are a bit more, you know yeah you're like i'll be fine yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'll be fine i'll get six hours sleep i'll be fine (laughs) yeah yeah, um we feel like we're immortal so we don't necessarily learn the good behaviors but i can tell you it's a great time to start practicing them because it's as they say a lot harder to teach old dogs new tricks and it's a lot harder to change your behaviors when you're 50 versus when you're 25 yeah absolutely um I wanted to ask you about PMS and PMS cravings because it's one of those things that is like normalized because I guess it is normal. People do, a lot of people do have it, but is it, is, is PMS cravings like a sign that something's not really functioning at an optimal rate? Like we shouldn't really have PMS cravings or is that? Well, actually physiologically speaking, um, we should expect some PMS cravings. Okay. Um, and we're talking about women who are cycling, so women who aren't on the combined oral contraceptive pill or who mm-hmm. aren't using something like a Implanon or a Mirena, for example. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about women who are ovulating and getting a natural period. Yeah. You can expect some PMS cravings or um, pre-period cravings. So mm-hmm. that for some women is like a week beforehand or up to two weeks beforehand. Um, and the reason for that is because... This is loosely what we could refer to as our high hormone phase of the menstrual cycle. So between day one of our cycle, which is the first day of our period and ovulation, that's our follicular phase. And we could loosely refer to this as the low hormone phase of the menstrual Mm -hmm. cycle. Whereas post ovulation and the time between ovulation and pre-period, progesterone levels increase significantly. Like Mm -hmm. Most of our progesterone, something like 98% of our progesterone is made post-ovulation. Right. And estrogen levels do increase, but not nearly to the same degree that progesterone increases. Mm -hmm. And progesterone increases our metabolic rate. So we're like, oh, yes, we want progesterone. Yes. We want more of it. Um, (laughs) Progesterone it, it increases our metabolic rate and um, therefore energy expenditure is naturally increased just due to this influence of progesterone, which means our energy intake requirements are higher. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to say for any given individual exactly how much higher their energy intake requirements are, but up to about 270 calories per day is within the realms of normal so that's like a small snack, for example, yeah. that a woman in this sort of pre-period post-ovulation phase needs. Mm-hmm. So if you have a female whose you know, conversation with herself is don't eat more, don't eat more, don't eat more, but physiologically her body is like, I need more, I need more, I need more, yeah. then that will manifest as, as cravings and What I always say to my clients is get on the front foot, plan yourself a snack to have in those days pre-period. So make, you know, a cacao bliss ball or have an extra chocolate protein shake with some chia seeds and a bit of mashed banana or something in there, but plan for it. Mm. So rather than 
deny yourself all day and then get to three o'clock or after dinner and just think, my gosh, I gotta have that chocolate bar because I'm so hungry. Yeah. Plan for it, remind yourself you've got that snack coming mm-hmm. and it it takes care of the physiological need for a bit more energy that day, mm-hmm. that day or those days of the menstrual cycle, but yeah. it prevents you from getting to that sort of desperate state of like, my gosh, it's got to be a chocolate bar or nothing else. Or nothing else. Type thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's such a good point because it's um, so powerful when you can like, if you track your cycle and you're in tune with what your body needs and then plan, like you said, plan for it because otherwise you just, um, it's such a funny thing isn't it it's like you don't um it's it's hard for I think a lot of women like friends that friends that I speak to as well to just accept that you get hungry at that time like oh this is just so weird like it's so odd and it's like no it's been happening like every time you get your period since you got your period it's like every cycle yeah Yeah. (laughs) don't don't deny it it's so funny don't we just like deny it I don't know I feel just so sluggish and like I'm just so bloated and so hungry and it's like duh like I do it all the time too and I'm like oh my god how many more years until (laughs) I click (laughs) now it stops now's the time now's the time yeah yeah and there are some other little things you know another influencing factor is that we are potentially a little more insulin resistant um, in that pre-period phase of the cycle and again that's because of this high progesterone relatively lower estrogen phase mm-hmm. um so i often aside from you know using the strategies that we've already talked about in this session around insulin resistance is i might use supplements with clients at this yeah. stage of the cycle and a nice generally safe and accessible supplement to use is magnesium yeah um a good magnesium chalate powder for example um, you know, between 200 and 300 milligrams per day mm-hmm. is safe and accessible and bring it in in that pre-period week or two weeks. And for a lot of girls, that also changes the sense of, you know, just taking the edge off the really serious cravings. Yeah. Um, and yeah. sometimes other PMS symptoms like headache, for example, mm-hmm. or um, irritability can be really relieved with that extra magnesium. Yeah, magnesium is great. I have been, um, I noticed such a difference once I started mm. taking that. So there are so many, yeah, little tweaks that people can do to um, help themselves. Um, now, I had a question here that's what, like, what's the best way to build strength and burn fat? But I have a feeling that's something that we may have potentially already um, touched on. Is that obviously in mm. correlation with the metabolism or is there more to it? I think we've pretty much covered it. Yeah. You know, building strength. Building strength is multifactorial, of course, and we talked about some basics of resistance mm. exercise and um, you know adequate protein intake, timing mm. food in and around your training. There's yeah. other influencing factors, of course, the amount of sleep we're getting, the amount mm. of stress we're under will influence to build muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of that burning, we talked about insulin resistance and meal composition. There, There is also the influence of our thyroid, which is undeniable. Mm. So for uh, anybody who's really struggling with, you know, low energy and not being able to lose body fat or they just find that the amount of body fat coming on just doesn't seem reasonable relative mm. to how they're living their life, yeah. it might be the thyroid that's impacting. Our thyroid is a is another little part of our endocrine system that releases its own hormones. And it's really like the master regulator of our metabolism. Right. And when thyroid hormones aren't being produced adequately, Mm -hmm. that can be another cause for, you know, an inefficient metabolism and those, those flow on effects of fat storage, low energy, some of the other signs of it being thyroid and underactive thyroid are things like sluggish digestion, so mm-hmm. not moving your bowels easily or every day, brain fog, so you know not being able to find your words or not being able to remember things easily. Yeah, that feeling cold, like you asked about before. Mm-hmm. So you know, 
always cold hands and feet or just always needing to put a you know a cardigan or a jumper on there's some signs of underactive thyroid which we haven't really talked about in this discussion but mm. it's definitely another component of burning fat that you know sometimes we need to turn that stone over and make sure it's not the thyroid that's contributing to fat storage yeah absolutely and is thyroid something that you believe can be um I guess fixed with um you know nutrition and diet or is it something that where it's like a lifelong uh thing that condition. you need to be medicated with or condition yeah mm. no in many cases it can be um at least assisted through mm-hmm. nutrition and lifestyle if not reversed so right. there's different types of thyroid conditions mm-hmm. um and let's Let's go with underactive thyroid because it definitely yeah. presents more commonly, which is where we would have um, an under underproduction of our thyroid hormones T4 and T3, mm-hmm. or inappropriate conversion of T4 to T3. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> but underactive thyroid is definitely more common and definitely more um, more relative to this discussion around metabolism and fat burning. We can have an underactive thyroid that is simply due to nutrient deficiency. Right. So if we have deficiency in key thyroid um, nutrients, mm-hmm. tyrosine, iodine, zinc, and selenium in particular, there are others that yeah. are ones. If we have inadequacies or even excess of some of those nutrients, it will be the starting point it'll be the thing that causes the underactive thyroid wow so like yeah we need to make sure we're um testing for what we call these thyroid cofactors or at least accounting for them mm-hmm. when we're trying to address underactive thyroid another very common cause of underactive thyroid is an autoimmune conditions mm-hmm. and hashimoto's can actually be supported through nutrition as well in the medical space uh usually it would only be treated with hormone replacement or medication which Mm -hmm. is called um or a version of thyroxine which is basically just replacing somebody's t4 with a medication yeah but what's beautiful about the holistic health space is that we have so many i guess more tools in our little toolkit when it comes to thyroid health mm-hmm. i can't prescribe medication that that's not my job but i have many other tools that i can use so i can use those nutrients in the case of hashimoto's there's some really wonderful research and i'm seeing it you know coming to life in practice is yeah. um specific dosing with selenium to help reverse hashimoto's or at least slow down the progression of hashimoto's yeah. we you can look at gut health, certain certain gut conditions, which are highly associated with Hashimoto's. So we can treat those gut conditions to have a positive flow and effect to the development and progression of Hashimoto's. Uh, and we can also support the immune system as well to um, sort of halt the progression of Hashimoto's, if not reverse it. So, yes, there's absolutely things we can do within the nutrition and holistic health space yeah. to reverse thyroid conditions or you know support the use of medication for those thyroid conditions that's really empowering to hear because obviously you know you are a holistic health practitioner i always have really believed in treating the body holistically so it's always a kind of scary notion when you hear about these thyroid issues or you know pcos and stuff like that and um to know that there's so much you can do with nutrition it's like food is medicine and you know like you say supplementing with the right um vitamins and stuff like that um you feel empowered in your own body to be able to um heal in that way so for sure for sure and don't get me wrong there is absolutely a place for western medicine and support and treatment but you know wouldn't it be lovely to think if you, you know, let's say you were 30 and you were diagnosed with a thyroid condition, wouldn't mm. it be lovely to think that you had taken care of, you know, the modifiable factors like your diet, for example, and your gut health and avoided medication 
rather than starting medication at the age of 30 and then being reliant on it, you know, for the rest of your life with still these unaddressed nutritional factors, you know, of inadequate selenium levels or inadequate iodine levels, which never get, never get treated. They just stay yeah. the way they are. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately what happens in the case of thyroid is if those other factors are never taken care of and somebody has just started on medication at a young age, mm-hmm. well, then the medication dose often just has to be increased and increased and increased as they get older because the desired effect is not taking place anymore. That's mm. also a really horrible position to see somebody in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You like to have to rely on a certain medication in order to feel kind of at a base level. So great. Um, debunked everything for me. <laughs> All my <laughs> questions debunked. Um, um, so we could do a part two if you need. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I mean, I do have one more question about the gut and its relation with hormones. I yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, what, how much significance does gut health have? Like if we have poor gut health, how much significance does that have in like dysregulating our hormones? Hmm. Well, it, there's many potential points in which it, it dysregulates our hormones. Um, you know, today we've talked about, Um, certain hormones like insulin, thyroid hormones, as well as our reproductive hormones like estrogen, progesterone. And gut health has the potential to impact all of those hormones. And and there's many different mechanisms by which that happens. But if, if, for example, we have um, leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability is the term I prefer to use, then we are going to be exposing exposed to more toxins okay. and that puts extra work on our liver to do. Right. And when our liver's overworked, it means that we have less, I guess, bandwidth to deal with detoxifying hormones like estrogen. <laughs> so if we have something like leaky gut, I actually mm-hmm. hate that term. I prefer the term yeah. increased intestinal permeability. Yeah. It can be directly related with common well, common hormonal imbalance that we see, which is estrogen dominance or estrogen excess. Mm-hmm. So that's just one connection between the gut and our hormones. But yeah. if we've got that, you know, leaky gut, we increase our risk of Hashimoto's, that that thyroid condition that we were mm-hmm. just talking about. So yeah. many connections between the gut and our hormones, and mm-hmm. um, it, you know optimizing gut health should almost be part and parcel with any hormone balancing strategy. Mm. Um, But optimizing gut health doesn't mean necessarily going and buying a probiotic from the pharmacy fridge. Um, Optimizing gut health can start with eating more of those non-starchy vegetables or Mm. eating less of those processed carbohydrates and eating more of those whole foods. Yeah. It can mean reducing your alcohol intake. Mm -hmm. It can mean eating more probiotic foods. Mm -hmm. So uh, apple cider vinegar or or fermented vegetables or sauerkraut or miso, like these are all fermented foods that we can bring into our diet to be populating healthy gut bacteria. And I would say for most people, they're all things that should be looked at before we go and spend money on probiotics or gut health testing which I regularly do but I don't like doing gut health testing before I know that those other foundations are being taken care of yeah wow it's so that's really amazing to hear how much effect the gut has on so many different um, mechanisms in the body because to be honest when I first started on my health journey I was like okay the gut's one thing and then the hormones are another thing and I just had this very disjointed idea of kind of how the body works but when you start to get into it everything works quite synergistically so um but I guess if anyone's looking to work with you are you taking on new clients at the moment as of right now I am taking on new clients but I um I'm 32 weeks pregnant I'm starting maternity leave uh in eight scary weeks and I will <laughs> you did mm-hmm. I will be having three months maternity leave so I'll be back on board in early June 2023 
and uh, taking on new clients at that stage. But people are welcome to follow me on Instagram for, you know, more insights. On my website, I have plenty of resources available. So there's free articles and recipes. And then I also have an ebook, which is the ultimate smoothie guide for active women. I have a seminar slash masterclass, which is available for um, uh, download at any time. And that is called Burn Fat for Fuel. So if anybody really liked today's content, but wants to understand a bit more of the nitty gritty or the testing Mm -hmm. they should do or you know, meal composition, recipe suggestions, burn fat for fuel, that masterclass is a great one. Awesome. And then for anybody who's interested in plant-based nutrition, I have a five-week plant-based program, which includes four weeks of meal planning, 30 recipes, um, live, not, not live, sorry, 11 recorded um, learning modules with me. That's called Plant-Based Kickstarter, and that's also available at my website. That's amazing. For people. So if they can't work with me because I'm on maternity leave, there's still lots of ways that they can learn and um, progress their health goals. Yeah, absolutely. Your Instagram especially is very informative, but the website as well, there's so many resources there. So even if you just want to kind of dip your toes in and just get a bit more education under your belt, I'll pop all the details below um, and you can chuck a a follow. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Marissa. It's been great talking to you. I'm glad you've learned and I hope everyone listening has learned and enjoyed it as well.